This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Joanna, Caleb F., Julian, Sam VR, and Benton. This episode is a milestone in two different ways. First, it's being released on Easter Sunday, the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Second, this is episode 100 of The Big Question. That means you've asked, and I've answered, more than 500 questions together. Hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as I have. As always, first we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Joanna, who asks, What is a synagogue? Joanna, in Greek, the word synagoge means a gathering place or a place of assembly, and that's where we get the word synagogue. In the Old Testament, the focus of Hebrew worship was, of course, on the temple in Jerusalem. But during the years of exile, when the people of Israel were held captive in other lands, they started organizing synagogues, congregations that would meet together to study scripture and to pray. After their return from exile, there were synagogues everywhere that Jewish people lived. In Israel, obviously, but also in the cities around the world where they were spread. In the days of Jesus, as we see in the Gospels, he went and taught in synagogues. And during Paul's missionary journeys, Paul typically began his work in an area by going to the local synagogue. In fact, the practices of the synagogue from the preaching and the prayer to the government by elders, gave a basis for organizing the early church. And now Caleb F. asks, What is your favorite sermon series you've preached? Caleb, I really can't pick one favorite because every series that I've ever preached has been a favorite of mine while I'm preaching it. Because whatever I'm preaching, I always love studying and teaching that text. But if I had to narrow it down, I could approach it this way. There are two sermon series that I've done and I wish I could do over again. Not because I thought something was wrong the first time around, but because I just got so much out of them that I'd love to encounter those texts for a second time. The first one was a short series that I did on John chapter 6, where Jesus talks about sacrificing himself for the life of the world. And the second one was a longer series preaching through the entire epistle to the Hebrews. Now, both of these were so rich that I'd love to do them over again and see what more there is to discover in these books. Maybe one of these days I'll give it a try. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Julian. Let's give Julian a round of applause. Here's Julian's question. Why doesn't God intervene with world catastrophes like starvation in Africa and the war in Ukraine? 
To answer this question, Julian, we're going to need to talk about a famous earthquake. We'll introduce a new term, theodicy. And finally, we'll talk about something very appropriate for Easter Sunday, which is the resurrection. Let's start with that earthquake. It happened in the year 1755 in the city of Lisbon, the capital of Portugal. It was a massively destructive natural disaster and also the first earthquake to be studied scientifically. But our concern is for the philosophical effects. Following the Lisbon earthquake, a lot of philosophers who'd been raised in the Christian world started asking a big question. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, then how can terrible things like this happen? Why does God permit them? Why doesn't he intervene? So you can see, for them, this earthquake functioned the same way the evils you mention in your question do. They're so terrible that we naturally ask ourselves why God doesn't intervene. After all, if someone gave you, Julian, the power to end hunger— or the power to stop war, you would use it, right? If you could stop evil, you would. God does have that power, and according to the Bible, he's more loving than you are, so why doesn't he use his power the way you would? Some of those philosophers I was just talking about came to the conclusion that either God wasn't all-powerful, so he couldn't intervene, or maybe he wasn't all-loving, so he could, but just didn't intervene. And a lot of them started to think that maybe there wasn't any God at all. This earthquake marked the beginning of atheism in Europe, according to some scholars. So let's talk about that term I mentioned earlier, theodicy. In philosophy, a theodicy is the attempt to answer the question of why God permits evil. Another term you might hear that signals the same conversation is the problem of evil. Whenever people talk about trying to explain the problem of evil, they're talking about theodicy. Now, when it comes to answering this question, it won't surprise you to know that there have been many different arguments put forward over the years. To simplify things, though, I'm going to say that they mostly boil down to this. The reason God doesn't intervene in the evil we see in the world is that he respects free will. The idea is God can't intervene without somehow violating human freedom, and he values free will so much that he would rather permit evil than stop it at the cost of freedom. Look, I'm not a philosopher, and a lot of smart people have made this case, but I have to be honest with you, it literally drives me nuts. Please, 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 if anyone ever asks you why God doesn't intervene, don't say he doesn't intervene because of free will. In fact, don't say he doesn't intervene because of anything. Don't say he doesn't intervene because the whole point of the gospel is that God does intervene. The whole point is that God does the only thing that can stop evil, and God is the only one who can do it. What is God doing about evil? Jesus is what God does about evil. How does God intervene? Jesus is how God intervenes. Put it like this, all evil comes from the root problem of sin. Suffering, natural disasters, war, whatever it is, all of it flows from the fundamental spring of sin and death. 
And there's only one way to intervene in the problem of sin, and that's sacrifice. Because sin incurs a debt. Sin creates unholiness, injustice, and that cannot simply be ignored. It has to be paid for. If you don't pay for sin, then you cannot escape the sentence of death. So there's no solution to sin without sacrifice, because sin creates a debt, and the debt must be paid. So the only way to intervene is to make the sacrifice that atones for sin and thus defeats evil, destroying death. And that is exactly what Christ does. Which brings us to the resurrection. On the day of Jesus' resurrection, when the tomb is revealed to be empty, that signals that Jesus has triumphed over sin and death. The solution worked. The victory is already won, even though the effects are not yet fully realized. When Jesus returns, all that misery will be answered. All that injustice will be made right. And we long for that day. But never think that because we're still waiting for that fulfillment, that God hasn't done anything or is just a bystander to human suffering. He's done everything, to put it right. And think about this. I said earlier that if you had the power, you would use it. But is that really true? I think it's true that any of us, if we could make evil go away without paying too high a price, we would do it. But what if you had to pay the same price Jesus did? You couldn't, obviously, because of your sin. This is just hypothetical. But imagine that you could intervene so long as you paid what Jesus had to pay and gave up what Jesus had to give up and endured what he had to endure. Would you do it then? Honestly, I don't think so. Because most of us don't even do what we have the power to do. The point is, this isn't a difficult question for Christians. The answer is hidden in plain sight. God has intervened in Jesus, and no intervention short of Jesus would ever be enough. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Sam VR asks, have you preached more than the other grace pastors before you? Sam, definitely. There were two pastors who came before me. One was with us for about two years and another one for about three. I preach a year between the two of them and then regularly for the past eight years. Now that is a lot of sermons, though to be honest, I feel like I'm just getting started. And now Benton wants to know, what are your general thoughts on the big question and what do you expect in the future? Benton, in general, I think it's going pretty well. The goal of the big question has been to encourage young people to see that it's okay to have questions and it's okay to ask them out loud. This podcast has really helped with that. You all ask great questions, not just for the podcast, but in everyday life. As far as what I expect in the future, I really don't know. I try to focus on where God has us right now and leave the future in his hands. After 100 episodes, some people might think that all the big questions are surely covered by now. But I don't see it that way at all. There are a lot of big questions still to ask, and I'll do my best to keep answering them.
That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.